Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I'm talking with Dr. Brian Bantam, the co-author of Choosing Us, Marriage and Mutual Flourishing in a World of Difference. Brian, welcome to the program. Thanks, Josh. It's good to be here. Now, I, I want to start off, this is a marriage book, but it's not, it's not what you might think of when you think of a marriage book. It's not typical. So sort of uh, begin by taking me through what the book is about and what you think sets it apart from other books that might be considered in that marriage manual genre. Yeah, well, the, the book really began when uh, Gail, um, she she kind of, she prays and she, she prays and fasts at the beginning of every year. And at the end of this kind of praying and fasting, she woke up one day and said, uh, we need to write a book together. And, um, you know, like, and, and I've written books before and, and, and Gail has some books that she wants to, wants to, to write. Um, but we, and so we kind of thought we've, we've kind of been in ministry together tangentially. So we haven't always like served in the same church, but we've always had a sense of call together mm -hmm. and, and that's always been part of our journey. And so when we started thinking a little bit about the book that we would write together, Initially, it was like maybe leadership or maybe race or um, kind of intercultural realities. But the more we started really thinking about it, we realized that there were so many couple, young couples, especially in our lives, who, um, whether they were, you know, both trying to help each other flourish, but didn't know what that looked like, had young kids, and, and inevitably, um, the woman was kind of having to slow down a little bit, um, and then a lot of couples that we talked about were, were kind of dealing with realities of race um, and, and especially in the midst of all of the kind of the protests and, 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 and violence in the United States. And, you know, and that was having an effect on their relationships. Um, and so the more we realized that, you know, we said there isn't there actually isn't a book out there that talks about marriage apart from some of those kind of old complementarian um, kind of viewpoints where there are very specific roles for the man and very specific roles for the woman, um, books that actually presume, um, uh, you know, that marriage is between a man and a woman doesn't imagine other possibilities of what uh, marriage and covenantal life could look like. And we started to realize, you know, this is actually, this is a lot of our story, um, both our own stories, kind of thinking about what racial life means, um, as well as trying to think a little bit about what the different ways of imagining what, uh, what, our, what our genders, how those shape our relationship and how, how it shapes our imagination going forward. So, um, so yeah, so the idea was like, you know, let's, let's offer our story, not, you know, not necessarily as a kind of, oh, if you do these five things, you'll have a successful marriage, but more just as a, as a sharing of our story. And we hope that people find a different way to imagine what their lives could look like along the way. Mm -hmm. That was the thing that really drew me to the book. It's, it's, it's highly personal. You're telling your own story. I think that when people, when, when, when you read a book that is, you know, five ways to have a better marriage or whatever, and it's very, um, I don't say like uh, uh, objective in the sense that the object is at the center of the book, and not subjective in the sense that there's a subject or a narrative or a storyline that's being developed. Um, what we're seeing in in your book and choosing us is that not only 
are you saying it's it's not this is what you should do, but it's this is what we have done. This is what we have learned along the way. Um, I think people really learn by example, and they they learn through story. They, you see uh, what you're writing about is in the context of your own life. So people not only can say, well, here's the principle, uh, but here's the principle as, as how at least, you know, the Bantams have, have worked it out. Uh, so just, just let's start and just tell me about how the two of you met. Uh, obviously, if you read the book, you're going to get a lot more of that story. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, just for the beginning part, um, tell me, tell me a little bit of your story. Yeah. So, so, uh, Gail and I met, we met when we were both 19, um, in college, uh, and it was long distance. So we both had, we had a mutual friend who went to school with me, whom she had gone to school with, uh, in middle school and they had kind of just kept in touch. And, you know, as, as you tend to do, and I was a good Southern Baptist boy, um, you know, I had been praying about my future spouse and had written her characteristics down in a notebook and, and was faithfully praying over them and all that good stuff. And, uh, and my, fr- my friend and I were, were talking about, you know, just dating and girls. And, and she said, you know, like, oh, I know this, I know this perfect person for you. Let me, let me introduce you. So she gave me her address this was before email and FaceTime and, and all that stuff. So she gave me her address. I wrote her a letter um, and I got so excited that I actually called her before she'd even gotten the letter. And, and so she didn't really know, she had no idea what, <laughs> what was happening. I mean, our friend had told her to expect um, me to reach out. And so we, we, I, we, we talked and like that first conversation, we talked for two and a half hours, just about, anything and then we hung up and said you know like oh do you want to do you want to keep talking and so then she called me and we talked for another two and a half hours you know and again like this is before free cell phone service so we're talking about you know 10 cents a minute 11 cents a minute um so these are not these are not cheap commitments but we just there was just something that clicked about our stories i mean funny enough is that the, the kind of weird thing about the way we met was our friend had told me oh this is going to be a person that you might like. She told Gail, oh, this is a person who could kind of help you through some of your grief because her her mother had actually just passed away. Um, and my father had passed away the year before that. And so, I, you know, I, I wasn't really like making moves or anything, but I was I was definitely trying to be charming and funny all the while. You know, she just thought I was just a person <laughs> to, talk, to talk to about this. And so, um, but in the midst of that, something clicked and, you know, we got off the phone and within a couple of days we were calling each other again and letters were going back and forth. And, um, and I think there was just something about our stories, about both feeling in between, both, um, I think, kind of grieving our, in our own ways, loss of parents, difficult childhoods, um, and, and something about that connected for us. I. What I'm hearing, and this is I, this is very similar to um, how my wife and I began our relationship, because it was long distance as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing about a long distance relationship is that it really forces you to communicate very well. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you have that that foundation of communication because you know a lot of relationships, uh, you know, get based on shared location. It's just okay; these two people are in the same 
place or, or you know, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's old school and we met, you know, we, we met in college or we met at the bar, we met in the club or new school. We met on any one of the dating apps, you know, there it's like a, there's a shared sense of we both came to this location for some reason, whether that reason was to find a spouse or not. But when you, when you base the relationship and all you have to go on is not a shared location, but a shared communication, mm-hmm. how do you feel like that changes the relationship? Oh, I mean, I think it absolutely does because you don't have, you know, you don't have that kind of common interests per se, you know, like, oh, we both like to go biking or we both like walks. We both like the museum um, as a kind of point of connection. Everything is verbal. Everything is communication. You talk about everything. And one of the beautiful things about it is you just talk about dumb stuff just because you want to be in you want you just want to be with one another and so it's just oh like this is this is the kind of cheetos i got yesterday oh i can't i i can't believe you had cheetos um these are the kind of apple pies i had i couldn't believe what this person did and as and as you're sharing more and more of your everyday life you're also coming to to know that person um in a really really intimate way um it also cultivates a lot of trust too because there's nothing worse than fighting long distance it's just the absolute worst. Um, and, you, you know, talk and talk and talk. And then all of a sudden the line goes real quiet and then, you know, something's up. And, and so then even then there's a kind of, there has to be a kind of feeling out and a trusting that that person's going to, going to call you back that wants to engage. And then you like, all you have left to do is talk it out again. There's no way of kind of physically making up or just kind of sweeping it under the rug and keep, and kind of getting in back into those routines because you can't fake a conversation. Um, and so you, you had to kind of constantly do that. And so we come, we come back to that over and over and over again, um, realizing that, you know, if we haven't gone two or three days without, you know, a decent conversation, we feel like something is kind of off for us. And, and so we always come, we always come back to that. I feel like my wife and I, we are really good we're really good communicators and like, cause we developed that aspect of our relationship. Even before we were dating, we were friends for several years, uh, long distance with a group of people uh, from around the country that were the same. So it was like this very natural thing. And I, you know, I tell anyone that, you know, asks about our own story. I'm like, man, c- communication is at the central of that. And I don't know that I recommend it, but go try being long distance from your city. <laughs> Uh, even if it's only for for a week or so, and see how that changes the way in which you relate to one another. Now, I want to move on. And the very first chapter of your book talks about how people change. Mm-hmm. And because people change over time, the, the person that you married uh, is not the person they are today. The person that you were, however long ago, is not the person you're today. Hopefully, it's for the better. Uh, but there are so many marriages that they just sort of, they fall apart or people are like, you know, I don't know that I like this person. anymore. we don't have that, you know, we used to have shared interests now they're not, you know, not so much, or we used to have shared beliefs or values. Now that's, that's not, not quite the same. Uh, how do we navigate changes like that in marriage? Yeah, well, I think that's, I mean, one of the reasons why we started with that is that it, a lot of it has to do with perspective, right? 
um, you know, we have, if you, you kind of go into it saying, oh, I love this person. This is my dream. And then all of a sudden when starts, things start to change, it starts to shatter that image a little bit. And oftentimes we don't have the kind of language or the capacity to deal with that change. So then we say, oh, well, I've fallen out of love or we're just, we've just grown apart. And, and certainly there's lots of, you know, really legitimate reasons why that happens. But I think for us, the question is, well, if you go in with the assumption that you're going to change, then that actually changes both the way that you, for instance, the way that you communicate, um, how you learn what that person, who that person is. And you're also making a decision to not just love who that person is right now, but you're also making a commitment to love who that person's going to be, which is frankly one of the differences between a marriage and, you know, maybe some of these other relationships that are kind of contingent on common interests or the amount of time spent together. Um, not that marriage is the, bet, the, the the kind of end all be all of the world. And I think that's one of the things that we actually wanted to kind of try to name is that people put marriage on a kind of pillar. Um, and I think because you have that added pressure of marriage is the height of what all relationships should end as, and the kind of joined expectation that neither of us are gonna change once we've joined one another, those are two really significant pressures that I'm not sure any marriages can really kind of survive under. But instead, if you figure, oh, wait a second, actually everything's gonna be fluid. You know, if you, you build with the assumption of an earthquake, right? It means that you have to create that room to give and move and bend um, and the structure will survive. But if you make it rigid, the whole thing tumbles down. And I think that that's, a lot of it has to do with perspective. And if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, once we have those lenses, then we actually begin to see the ways that those changes are happening in small ways already. And that can become part of the communication, part of the topic of conversation um, along the way. For us, you know, we got married so young, so we knew that we were going to change. Um, just in our talking to one another, we actually changed a lot. I mean, so I came from a conservative uh, Southern Baptist church and Gail was Pentecostal and mom was a pastor. And I still remember that first conversation when I just kind of blurted out with so much confidence, oh, well, of course, women can't be pastors because it's biblical. And it just went silent on the other end. And so then we had to kind of talk about it, which then meant I had to go back to scripture, had to start rethinking who my understanding of God was, who I thought I was. And so all that was within the first year. And so I was like, well, clearly we're, things change and, and that's okay. We don't have to be afraid of that as long as we are trusting one another that we're going to try to point those changes towards one another um, mm -hmm. as much as we can. It, for the listeners uh, who may not know your wife, Gail, what does she do now? Uh, my wife is a lead pastor, mm -hmm. a lead yes. pastor in Seattle. Yes, at Quest Church, which, by the way, a uh, great church. I've never been there, but I, I have listened to your live streams over um, the past uh, couple of years. Oh, great. So I am oh, great. aware of her ministry and uh, have been personally blessed by it. So uh, that so that that's a interesting factor because that sort of theological change, obviously, especially if you're coming from a traditionally conservative background that might say, well, the man, you know, complementary and the man is supposed to lead. So the expectation might be for you at that time, well, okay, 
Gail's going to come under the banner of my theology and my thinking. Uh, so that's something that you guys had to work out mm-hmm. before you got married. Uh, what? So this is one of those things you got to rethink about. What are your core core values? Um, what were those conversations like? And how how do you picture people? You know, if they're really thinking about taking a relationship seriously, but they have these differences of beliefs, and that could be you know, theologically, could be politically, whatever. How do you work through that? And is there a point where you just say, you know what, this isn't compatible. This isn't going to work. It's going to create more strife in the relationship than not. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in some ways, fortunately, you know, I, I came to Christ later. So I, I had become a Christian probably only two or three years before I met Gail. So in some ways, the maybe the Southern Baptist teachings didn't quite take take root, which I think was probably a good thing at the end of the day. Um, but, but I will say that part of, I think when you're, when you're kind of encountered by someone who's different than you, you know, you have kind of two choices. You can either say their encounter is, is God in a way that I don't understand, but I want to, or you say that encounter is not God and it's illegitimate because, because I'm right. And, and I think that, you know, love does, you know, love, you love somebody, you know, you don't, you're not going to presume that they're wrong. Um, and so many of the things that I loved about Gail were clearly tied to the ways that she loved God mm-hmm. and the ways that God encountered her. And so part of what it became then was like, I don't really understand what's happening, but I want to understand. And as I, as I want to, as I try to understand, is it possible that then I go back to scripture, I go back to these theological ideas with a new, with new eyes. And all of a sudden I begin to see like, so for example, I I began to see all of the women in scripture in very different ways, right? Um, after having conversations with Gail, I still remember when we first went to, we were trying to figure out where to go to church when we first got married. We were both living in, we were living in, got married summer before our senior year of, of college, moved, uh, we're living in this tiny little apartment in Rochester, trying to finally fi- find a church for the both of us. And, uh, you know, Gail was really accommodating, uh, you know, didn't want to necessarily throw me into the Pentecostal fire too quickly. So we went, so we tried to go to some of like the suburban proto-Baptist kind of churches that were kind of fim- similar to what I wanted, but also a little bit different. And they were just, you know, they were just really staid and boring and really, really white. And Gail was just like, I just, I, I don't think I can do this. Mm-hmm. I just don't think I can do this. And I was like, well, okay, well, let's try, let's try your church. So we go to the, we go to the full gospel church downtown, downtown Rochester. And, you know, the first thing we do, the first thing we come in and there's people already, I mean, I think people might've been running around in prayer, like in, in the back. Um, as soon as the, as soon as the bass started, started going, you know, people's hands were up, there were t- people speaking in tongues. I mean, it was just, it was just the whole thing. And so the first, I would say the first probably six months of that service, all I did was like try to focus on the words of the song and not and not pay attention to anything else that was happening. Um, 
And in that moment, I could have reserved, I could have made a judgment and maybe I probably was about the kind of faith or the simplicity or the over emotions. Cause I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't a super emotional person in those kinds of ways, but you know, you stay because she's there um, and she finds God there. So I'm going to try to find God, God there too. And lo and behold, slowly, like I had this kind of moment where my hands were getting kind of literally pulled up over my head. I felt like God had kind of grabbed my fingers and were kind of, and so I, I like, without even realizing it, my hands were up in the air. Gail was looking at me like I was strange. And I was like, I don't, this isn't me. I don't know. But in that moment, also something happened in me, you know, something opened up in my chest and my heart. I experienced the music in a different way. I experienced God in a different way. And, and from that moment on, I was like, oh, wait a second. Like, this isn't just about appreciating a difference. It's also about being open to the possibility that that difference has something to teach me, mm-hmm. um, that God is going to move through Gail, th- this difference. Now, it's, it is entirely possible that some of these differences do fundamentally, um, that these, these differences do fundamentally contradict one another. Um, you know, you get, to, you get to a point where I mean, I don't know if like singing songs is, is the greatest example, but, you know, whether it's like how one wants to, you know, whether one wants to take a vow of poverty and the other believes that, you know, it's perfectly okay to live in, in a big house, you know, in the city. Those are pretty, those are pretty big, you know, outworkings of one's faith that have to be considered. But, um, but even then, you know, the question is, how is God working in that? way and is god big enough to hold all of your all's differences or is god reduced to sim- to simply the way that i think about who god is mm-hmm. is, is a, i think a big a big question we always have to ask ourselves i've i've met so many people over the course of the past you know i think two three four five years that have sort of gone down this path of moving away from their more conservative evangelical upbringing um to more progressive faith you know sort of deconstruction um Mm -hmm. they have but their spouse hasn't so they find themselves you know no longer you know it's they're the ones who moved um they they used to be you know back here uh they've moved their spouse hasn't and that creates a really you know conflict in the in the household because um that his you know th- those areas can be very contentious and even in, in, in of course in in this day and age that also manifests itself politically uh, mm-hmm. as much as it does theologically uh, do, do you have any advice for people who are in mm-hmm. that situation on how to sort of navigate those conflicts yeah, I guess there's there's probably maybe two two levels of conflict. So one is the ideological or the theological. So we we have very different beliefs about who God is or about what the Bible is or how to read it. Um, you know, and and I, and I think to some to some extent you could say, you know, let let God speak through the way that you read. I'll let God speak through the way that I read. I'll honor because I can understand, I can understand how you've been formed, having been there myself. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as you can respect that, that these are the things that I've read. These are the experiences that I've had that have led me to a different place. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And hopefully there's a kind of relationship there where you'll want to read what I've read and to, to understand at least why I got to where I did, not necessarily whether or not you'll agree or not. I think that's one level where, you know, if, if there's a kind of communication, a kind of trust in one another that, you know, you should be able to like live in the house with one another, love one another and trust what, what will happen over time. But I think there's another level that's probably harder, which is to say, you know, when, when a belief is attached to a praxis or a way of life that constricts another person's flourishing, um, either internal to the house, right? So, so maybe one, maybe the, you know, maybe the woman's theology has become more progressive but the man's theology remains more conservative, right? And that, but that theology means that there are things that the woman can't do, right? And he's going to make sure she can't do it. I think that's a more difficult one because essentially his theology is diminishing her the possibilities of her material flourishing, right? It's it's determined what her life will mean, and and I think that there are some deeply problematic aspects to that kind of relationship. Or you could also turn it externally to say, um, you know, I've become more, more progressive, you've remained conservative, but now in your conservatism, you are justifying, you know, the killing of black men, right? You are, your votes, your vote and your, and your dollars, our dollars that we're earning are going to support causes that justify violence and the, the desecration of of the Imago Dei and other people. Um, I can't abide with that. And so I think those have become more serious conversations that hopefully, you know, each person is willing again to acknowledge and listen. But if it if it starts to result in some very material uh, violences, um, mitigations, uh, I think that those are those are places where, you know, a couple might need to take a really serious, have a really serious conversation about uh, what their lives look like together. Mm-hmm. Another issue that you talk about in the book is about family background uh, and the expectations or assumptions that, that people have, you know, because marriage isn't just about merging two people in a relationship. It's mm-hmm. joining families and like all the assumptions that come with it. And this can be you know, that that's as serious and big as, you know, theological upbringing and background uh, to a small is like, hey, what do we have for dinner? Uh, mm-hmm. Because those, you know, in that and what are we going to have for dinner can be a very big thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> quite often, those changes are things that people may, they may not even think about because there might just be the assumption of, I think, especially if you get married younger. Um, or if you, um, if you, if you haven't had much of an influence out of your sort of parents culture, uh, if you haven't, yeah. if you haven't moved out of that subculture of whatever it is you were raised in, uh, and the person that you are in a relationship with is out of that subculture, uh, that can lead to a lot of, um, a lot of difficulties in trying to, to merge that. I know for you and for you and Gail, that sort of manifests itself um, through racial differences. Uh, but even beyond that, there's just, there's just so many items and so many pieces that go together when you're trying to bring two people together in a relationship like yeah. that. Um, what, 
what 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 things can couples do? Um, maybe they're in a relationship and they're working their way toward marriage. Uh, what are some things they should be expecting? Uh, what are some conversations they should be having in order to make that transition to you know one flesh, one life, something that's easier? Yeah. Well, I think that, and, and I'm and I'm glad. I'm I'm really appreciative of of you broadening the question because I think sometimes when we think about race, we think of it really. Sometimes we think it kind of narrowly. But it, while for Gail and I, the story of of a kind of interracial relationship certainly has racial histories and and cultural context behind it. Um, I think you're absolutely right that everything from the food that we have to the ways that we spend time with families, the ways our expectations of of money, you know, all of those things are are kind of cultural spaces. They're cultural. Uh, they're like little mini cultures that we oftentimes have to navigate. And and I would say again, this actually comes back to our to our first point about change, is that whenever we think that where we're from. Or, or the life that we grew up with is the totality of what we are and what we hope for ourselves and the other person, there's always going to be problems, right? Um, because in a sense, we say, well, this is what we always have on Tuesday nights, and this is the beach that we go to in the summer, and, and that's what it means, that that's the life that I imagined for myself. Um, but when we start to when we start to kind of think back a little bit, and I think if we're really honest with ourselves, all of those things, even in our own life, so you don't even have to live, think about other people's lives, are always more complicated than what we remember them to be. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it was the beach trip, whether it was the food that we had, um, there are histories that are involved that work themselves into our own hopes for that thing, whether, whether it's because we're trying to press against it, right? Because we're trying to like, we want, we want to correct something. Um, and then we've kind of selectively forgotten like all the crap that, <laughs> that happened in order, like while we were at the beach. Uh, so I would say that that first moment of, of saying, look, I don't actually know my own history as well as I think I do. Mm -hmm. um, and because I don't know my own history as, as well as I think I do, I need to be open to the possibilities of learning more about who I am about my own family's upbringing. Um, and then this could also connect to, you know, to a kind of racial self-understanding, to an ethnic self-understanding, um, to realities of immigration, to realities of whiteness and how whiteness itself evolved over time in the United States. Um, and so I need to understand those things because those shape who I am. And as I come to understand them, I also need to be open to the possibility that I'm gonna make some different choices. I'm gonna fall in love with some different possibilities and that the dream that I have is actually one that I can't imagine, not one that I've been protecting my whole life in some regards. Mm -hmm. So for, for you and Gail, you and this is sort of the center, the central part of the book, not that that's the primary theme, but just sort of forms the center of the book, is your chapters about racial identity and working out not just your relationship together as an interracial couple, uh, but your relationship with yourself, yourselves individually, as you each discovered your own racial identity and relationship with your ethnicity. Mm -hmm. uh, talk to me a little bit about that and then how you both 
you know, to sort of together helped each other develop your individual identities and then how that merged together for you. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I had mentioned earlier that Gail and I kind of had a common bond of being kind of of a kind of having an in-between experience of, of life. And so so I'm a black mixed man. My mom was white. My, my father was black. Uh, Gail is uh, Korean American and, you know, but Korean American and oftentimes not quite fitting in in her own kind of Korean American churches um, growing up. And so people would oftentimes think that she was mixed, um, would ask her, like, are you, are you all, are you whole Korean um, over and over and over again? And so both of us, in a sense, were kind of always getting that, who are you? What are you question in terms of where are we from? And, and for me, you know, as a, as a, a kind of black mixed man, that idea of, of kind of being, of claiming blackness, what was a journey for me? Um, I grew up, you know, in a predominantly white neighborhood with my white mother. My father was kind of in and out, but, you know, he, he didn't necessarily have a lot of interest in showing me what it meant to be black in America. So, um, you know, so when I compared myself to my brother who was darker, when I compared myself to other black kids in my classes, I felt like I wasn't like them. Um, and so this idea of what it meant to be black, but I also knew I wasn't white. Um, and so, and Gail similarly, like, like obviously knew that she was Korean, felt Koreanness, but then also felt a kind of alienation from that. And so in a lot of ways, I think we found home in one another. Um, that being said, though, we also found that home in one another could never exclude the stories of, of Blackness in America, the stories of whiteness and white supremacy, the stories of, the, of kind of Korean immigrant identity, of patriarchy that was kind of working underneath those. And... Um, and, and we had to both kind of really think about it and, and figure it out. And so for me, that meant, you know, really coming to understand that I was part of the Black experience um, in the United States. While I, you know, I didn't necessarily feel like that when I was young, you know, I would not have had the luxury of choosing to not be Black had it been 30 years prior, um, especially when I was in, in high school, college. So so you say, oh, but like, so what it means to be Black then is, is who your parents are, but it's also who you choose to be, who, you're who, you, who you choose to be for, um, who you choose to try to create flourishing for, um, and the ways that your body does work in the world. For Gail, um, I think it was really this question of, um, you know, how, do, how to escape some of the maybe the more um, limiting realities of, of Korean American culture, but also holding on to the Korean American culture that she she experienced in her own life. But then how do you hold on to some of those aspects that were um, more life-giving? Um, unfortunately, you know, we experienced a kind of uh, a kind of pressure point really early on in our marriage because uh, when Gail told her father that we were going to get married, he, he essentially um, told her that, you know, you, you can't marry a black man and you're, you'll have, you have to choose. And, and she chose me to, you know, to, you know, to with tremendous sacrifice. I mean, they, they had only reconciled maybe a couple of years before he eventually passed away a few years ago. Um, but I think that experience, I think for both of us showed us that you can't escape the realities of, of racism. You always have to 
you're, you're, you have to make an intentional choice in your life to both embrace the histories and the stories and create possibilities of flourishing in one in other people's stories as well. And, um, and oftentimes doing really hard work of how you're, how you've been formed in cultural spaces, um, you know, either towards a kind of white, white proximity or towards another. And I think, and I will say that this is, I think this is true for any, for anybody, regardless of their kind of racial background, because we've all been formed in communities in certain ways that have certain values, commitments, presuppositions. Um, and even if you were, you know, even if you've been married to someone of the same race, they may have very different presuppositions about what the, the ways that our bodies do work in the world and what our aims should be. And so those always have to be both talked about um, but also kind of felt out because there's lots of things that we don't necessarily consciously understand, but then we have to ask ourselves, oh, why is it that you don't want to go to that grocery store? Why is it that you don't want to live in that neighborhood? And you're like, well, I just like it better. Well, no, act like maybe you need to dig a little bit to figure out what are some of those values and formations that shaped you that, that are causing you to maybe resist a certain community, a certain neighborhood, a certain school, um, things like that. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it too, it has to come with, and this goes back to that, that core concept of communication of, you know, when there is pushback to not just be like, I, you know, you're being silly or you don't have a good reason for that or whatever, but to, to actually acknowledge that the other person has a different lived experience than you have. And even if they can't put words to why they're having this you know, visceral reaction to something. Like you said, grocery store that we go to, type of church that you want to attend and, and so on, um, that there's still a reason there. And just because it can't be verbalized or just because they don't know, you know exactly what that is, but then you work that out in communication to be like, okay, I hear you. I understand what you're saying let's talk through this to see if we can get at maybe what the real issue is, because that might actually change then how we each approach whatever the, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, and, and the question is always going to be, you know, do you trust the other person to do the work? Mm -hmm. And then do you trust, and does that person trust you to embrace the answers after you've done the work? Mm -hmm. um, and, and that, that, that all that will always take time. And it will kind of continually evolve because the thing that we thought the was the answer this month in a year might be really different once we've had a few more encounters, read a few more books, um, understood the history a little bit. Then all of a sudden it's, oh, wait a second. This is what I thought. This is actually what it is. And and trusting the other person to be with you along the journey is just a huge is, is a huge part of it. What advice do you have specifically for couples who are in or considering uh, an interracial dating relationship for navigating everything that comes with that. Yeah, I would say, I think one thing, one really big part of it is, um, is first to, to realize that you are not the kumbaya embodiment of racial reconciliation. <laughs> I would say the first thing, like, just know that that's not what you're doing. Uh, you're not solving the world's racial problems by being together. Um, and the reason why I say that is because I think sometimes we think 
that just because we love someone who's different from us, that we actually don't have all these tethers and connections and biases and, and stuff that in fact, it's entirely possible that part of what attracted you to one another actually has to do with the ways that we've been formed in racial worlds, whether it's what we think about beauty, what we think about ourselves, the ways that a certain person is beautiful to us and they perhaps, um, I don't want to say trophy is a hard is a harsh word, but we have to acknowledge how how white supremacy shapes our understandings of beauty and intelligence, kindness, all of those kinds of things. So, and and so that would be the second thing is that, you know, being willing to do the work to figure out how race has actually shaped you and your family. Mm-hmm. Um, what are those kind of racialized tendrils that are working themselves out in your own life so that you can begin to both, so that you can begin to address them honestly with one another. Um, and so I would say, so those are, that would be a second part. And then I would say the third part is being really committed to multiracial contexts of, of any kind. Like if, so if you, if you're in an inter- interracial relationship and it ends up being that one person, I would say like, especially if it's, if it's with a, a, a white person, but if it's, if one person is, has to kind of give up a connection to a community mm-hmm. um, perpetually. Now it might not happen initially because that person may not want to be part of their community because our understandings of our histories and cultures evolve, right? But eventually they may say, well, like, I didn't want to be part of that community, but I really feel like I need to reestablish some roots or I miss the language or the food or there was a certain way of being that I don't feel, and I, I'm realizing that I don't feel whole in, in this other place. Um, so being committed to multicultural, multiracial contexts that allow both people to discover um, who they are with one another and these kind of larger histories that they're a part of. Um, and then starting to think a little bit about how those, di- those histories work themselves out in daily ways. Um, and, and I think when we start to do that work, some really beautiful things begin to happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think about, uh, I, I was a pastor at a Chinese church, primarily Chinese congregation. And um, we had a few families that were uh, interracial couples. And the, uh, I don't say struggle, but the challenges of uh, being like, okay, um, how do I fit in in this culture? And a lot of the families would, they would, they would come to our church most of the time. And then every once in a while, they would go to a church that was more akin to the other spouses, um, you, you know, their culture, just, just, it was just like, just, just, just enough of a balance to be like, okay, you get this connection or for a lot of families, um, particularly ones where it was like one spouse was white and one spouse was Asian. It was like, okay, we go to the Asian church because this is the place where they can be fully themselves. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, and they don't, they're, they don't have to be a minority. And I, yeah. I speaking as, as someone who was a, a, a white man uh, in, you know, it, it was the first, the only building that I walked into where I was the minority. Uh, but I had the option of always of stepping out right. and, right. you know, I became the majority again. Um, so finding those, those areas in which you can be like, okay, uh, we are each finding our own place and our own culture. Everyone has their home and it may mm-hmm. not be where how, how you, how you live that in the day to day may look different. Uh, but it's, it's great for each person to have those communities and to figure out how do we work in 
to each of those and, and feel comfortable and, you know, flourish. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, but, and what I really appreciate about what you're naming is this, and that's part of the history is like, what are the dynamics of, of power mm-hmm. that are always working um, um, in us? And, and can we and our family try to mitigate and resist some of those powers to create a different kind of power and different kind of energy in our, in our relationship? Absolutely. So one one last section I want to talk about. I know this has been kind of long, but I think it's been a really productive. No, it's all good. It's a really productive conversation. Uh, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, sort of the last major theme that I drew out of the book uh, really had to do with um, spouses navigating each other's career goals and mm-hmm. aspirations. And uh, we kind of talked before uh, podcast started recording. Uh, that I, I feel that personally, uh, having now I'm, I'm the stay at home dad right now in, in this relationship. Um, and that's a big change from a few years ago when I was working two jobs, pastor and coach. And, um, we've, we've had to figure out how to like, well, now you're the one with the opportunity. And now this is my time to really make a radical change in my life. And I know that you, you and Gail had to go through something like that as well. Uh, so talk a little bit about your experience and then how you would suggest couples navigate, especially if both of them are in uh, career fields, how to navigate, say, one spouse has this uh, huge promotion, but it's going to mean a huge move. And now that leaves the other spouse with sort of floundering in their own career. Yeah. So I think one of, I mean, one of the things that we, and again, we didn't really necessarily, we didn't, we didn't kind of go into like, okay, like this is how we're going to approach things. Mm-hmm. Um, what we actually, I mean, I think we were both really committed to each other's flourishing, but it was one of those things. We also, we had a baby really early and, and it was really amazing how, you know, those kind of little moments you, without even realizing it, there are kind of these patriarchal kind of power dynamics that, that trickle in. So Gail had the baby. So which meant that it was just kind of easier for me to work a couple part-time jobs mm-hmm. and then eventually work a full-time job because then, Oh, like, well, cause you gotta, you have to breastfeed and you have to do this. And, and so kind of before, without even realizing it, we thought we were really egalitarian. We thought we were really down and all that good stuff, but without even realizing it, Gail had been kind of at home with the kids for four or five years. And, you know, I was going to school and I was working multiple jobs. And, um, and so I think one of the things that I think it's really important for couples to begin to think about, um, and again, we kind of, we come back to these things about power dynamics all the time, but it's, but there really are, there are very real power dynamics that even aren't necessarily generated by the couples themselves, but they're generated by the society at large, right? So once I, once Gail and I started to kind of realize how these were starting to work in some ways, I think, but, but then as well, we were also just really committed to both, to one of us being home with our kids. We didn't, we, could, we couldn't, part of it was just really practical. Like we just could not afford daycare. Um, and, and so we were fortunate to have jobs that were both really flexible. And, and so what the kind of consequence of that meant was that we were always kind of going a little slower than our peers. Um, so when I was in uh, MDiv, 
you know, like I was just, I was reading half as much as probably as, as I felt like other people were, I was just, you know, trying to get papers done as quick as I could, because, you know, you got a baby or you got to get home to do this and that. Um, and, you know, and Gail, obviously what, I mean, no, she wasn't working the full-time job. She couldn't pursue full-time jobs that she, that she wanted to. And, and so, but part of what ended up happening, the kind of consequence of that, or the, I think maybe the benefit of that meant that neither of us had the luxury of saying we can both be all in all at the same time. And at the end of the day, like part of what made that actually really helpful was at least on, for me, what it meant was, was that I also had to take some time to realize whether or not this kind of rat race was actually what I wanted to be a part of. And it really kind of came to a head when we were in Seattle, when we came to Seattle. So we graduated, Gail ended up doing her MDiv. Um, I got my PhD. We graduated on the same day. It was really beautiful. And, uh, and there was a lot of struggle and pain and difficulty with two people trying to go to school, work at the same time. Um, so that's where a lot of these kind of conversations and, and, and holy disagreements were, were, were working themselves out. But we really saw it when we moved to Seattle and, um, and we were really thankful for a job, you know, in the, in the academy, you know, you're thankful for any job. Um, but I also kind of wanted to be back at a Duke. I wanted to be back at a major institution. And so pretty much as soon as my feet hit the, hit the ground in Seattle, I was looking at job, at job listings to work my way up. And Gail was like, in, in the meantime, Gail had actually found a full-time job at Quest Church uh, as a worship pastor, um, that eventually as an executive pastor, it was probably the first ministry experience she had in her whole life where she was really seen and embraced, um, you know, in the midst of all that. And she was like, I'm good. I'm happy. Like, you're going to have to wait because I'm not traipsing you all. I'm not traipsing all around the country following you. And and I have to admit, like, that was really hard to hear. Like, oftentimes, it was just, it was really hard to hear, because I was, I was really ready to move on. But part of the gift in the midst of, of her asserting that, that I'm happy here, we both agreed to come here, um, was it also helped me to figure out whether or not that trajectory was what was really going to make me happy or not. And, um, and so I think part of it is like, I think, especially for men, you know, we, I think we are, are shaped in really powerful ways to presume that our call, our passions, our hobbies, even, right, are the things that everyone else needs to make room for and adjust to. And, and women are oftentimes the ones and almost always the ones who are essentially scrambling around doing all of the, the unseen labor to make these things kind of possible. And I think one of the things that we, we kind of discovered along the way was that everyone has to kind of share in that. And when everyone shares in that, it means that you don't go so fast and that that's okay. Um, because when, because if, even though you're not going fast, if you're figuring out what it means to enjoy, to care for, to support, whatever it is that you get will be richer at the end of it. Um, and, and I think that's something that we're starting to kind of figure out. So we, we always valued flexibility over money. 
Um, we valued opportunities for always, always moves that were both people could flourish as a priority. Um, and if it meant that we had to, until that came, until that came to fruition, it meant that maybe we had to stay somewhere where someone was maybe not flourishing as much. Um, and that was okay because we were, we have to kind of make that commitment um, from step to step. Um, so I'm not sure that might've been, I felt like that was a little convoluted, but um, I think those are some of the things that we, we yeah. are kind of working towards. I think it works. And, you know, obviously every situation is different and it looks different for everyone in, in how they do that. Um, but above all, it, it goes back to you, you're in this together. So you're like looking for how are we going to mutually flourish? And, and, the, and there's going to be seasons. Uh, there's going to be seasons where it's like, okay, right now, um, this job or this particular thing is going to take precedence uh, for this time. Um, and later it might be something completely different. And that, that goes back to the, to the, the thing in marriage being a constant is change uh, mm -hmm. that you just kind of move with it and um, not be so self-focused that you're only thinking about what you're doing, but, and how, what you're doing brings life to the relationship, the family and the, you know, the, the culture that you're creating as a family, even to people, friends and your extended people that are outside of um, just your family relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, like this, and this definitely comes back even to like these dynamics of power, because especially for men, so often, the opportunities are more frequent for us, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so whether or not, so do we use the privilege that oftentimes is, is afforded us to help make room for the, for, for our spouses, you know, or do we kind of just, well, you know, well, you know, eventually you'll get your time, but these are just, it's a great opportunity. Like, how can I turn this down? And then eventually it's 20 years of that before you know it. So, so being really conscious of those dynamics of power and ways that, even people see our, our male bodies and offer opportunities to us is, is kind of up to us to kind of say, no, actually, I'm going to take less. I'm going to stay home and work with my kid. I'm going to stay home with my kids so that you can do, do this. And that's, that's a radical, that's a radical shift. Mm -hmm. I want to wrap things up with this one final question for you. And that's obviously you wrote this book with your wife. So you had a chance to really work out what you talk. Uh, you had a chance to walk the talk. Uh, as you go through the writing process, uh, did you find that writing this book changed or challenged or strengthened your relationship in any way? Uh, I think it did all of those things at various moments. Um, so there were, so when we first started writing it, I wouldn't necessarily that it, I wouldn't say that it strained. I, I would say that it exposed the kind of fights that we always have. Mm -hmm. um, and especially as we've gotten older, we've changed, but we've also realized that we've gotten further in our careers and we have, we have a particular way of doing things. And so when we would try to think about outlining the book, for example, I was like, well, I was like, I want to free flow and just like let things emerge. And like, she wants to start with the title and like work in this linear way. And, and so then some of the, the kind of pressures were, wait, how do we work? you know, and, and how do we do this dance together? Cause I'm used to doing this dance on my own, but now I got to do it with you. Um, sometimes they're the old kind of strains of, 
um, you know, how do we manage all of the household things in terms of who plans and who has to do the dirty work and who gets to do the kind of sexy front facing kinds of things. Um, you know, and, and that for me was like kind of a big thing because I was like, well, you just, you do those things so well. And she's like, no, I don't do them well. I just, they have to get done and I do them. Uh, can't you learn how to do them well? And I was like, oh, I, I need, I need to figure out how to do that better. Um, so those are kind of kind of the constant strains. So it kind of, it just, especially in COVID, kind of widens them. Um, but I think it also strengthened strengthened us in the sense of we had never actually thought about. I mean, we thought about some of these things, but it's one of those things where you kind of put it in a book and you kind of line everything up and you, you kind of step back and you say, "Oh, wait a second! Like we actually, know, we've actually, we we've done something like this and." One of the things that I think that I'm most proud of is our, our boys have have all read the book and they all basically said, yeah, that's that's pretty much you. I mean, it makes we, we now know we feel like we know more because there's like all this backroom conversations that we never knew were happening. Mm -hmm. But the ways that you all talk about things and is what we've experienced. And I think that was a really huge confirmation for us that, you know, we've we've put our real selves into the book and. Um, and so by the end, in the end, we got, we just got the, the box of books today and we look at them and we're like, look, we made this together. Um, and so in the midst of all of those kind of struggles and pains and conversations and, and joys, we can kind of say like, we made this together and which I think is very much how we feel about our lives. Yeah. Yeah. So again, for those of you uh, that are listening, the book is Choosing Us. It releases March 1st. That's just here in uh, probably by the time this gets published, uh, right around this time that this interview will be published, the book will be coming out. So March 1st, uh, you can pre-order your copy. Uh, it comes out through uh, Brazos Press. Uh, it's a great, great publisher. I love everything that they, I try to read as much from them as I can because they are committed to promoting voices uh, like Gail's and like Brian's. Um, so this is a marriage book that is going to challenge your thinking because it's not the kind of marriage book that you're that you are thinking of when you think of a marriage book it's something completely different and really is about um, mutual flourishing so if you if you're in a relationship i think especially if you're in an interracial relationship uh, you're going to find a lot in this book that you're going to identify with uh, and a lot that is going to you're, you're going to feel seen and also, I think that if you're in an egalitarian, if you really, if you if you're searching for like, hey, we would like a marriage book, or if you're a pastor and you're looking for a, a premarital counseling book, but you can't find something that's egalitarian, uh, this is a really, really good option for you. Uh, so, Brian, thank you, thank you for the book, uh, thank you for your wisdom, and, and thank you for your time today. Thanks, Josh. It's been it's been fun.